Hey, TribCast fans, political reporter Patrick Svitek here with a special edition TribCast recapping what just happened and what's next now that the 86th session of the Texas legislature has adjourned. This conversation between myself, the Tribune's Ross Ramsey and Evan Smith, plus lobbyist Bill Miller and Michelle Smith was part of an exclusive event for subscribers for a premium evening newsletter, The Blast. Want to snag an invite the next time we do an event like this and receive what many call the best political newsletter in Texas? Go to trib.it slash blast19 now to receive more than 40% off the first year of your new Blast subscription. Um, welcome to Studio 919 of the Texas Tribune for our exclusive TextLedge recap. Uh, for those of you joining us here in person, please silence your phones so the folks uh, on the live stream can hear. Um, special thanks to Taco Deli and Cafe Aragona for breakfast tacos and coffee. Uh, though donors and corporate sponsors underwrite our events, they play no role in determining the content panelists, or line of questioning. Texas Tribune events like the one this morning are public service journalism in action. They're free to, free to attend, but not to put on. If anyone in the room has not yet subscribed to our premium newsletter, The Blast, please see Sarah Glenn at the back table to take advantage of our end of session discount. If you'll be tweeting today, join us in using the hashtag TT events, and we'll get to some, some introductions now. Down on the end there, we have uh, Evan Smith, the co-founder and CEO of The Tribune. Uh, next to him, Bill Miller, lobbyist with Hillco Partners. And then next to Bill, we have Ross Ramsey, co-founder and executive editor of the Tribune. And then next to me, we have Michelle Smith, an education lobbyist with Raise Your Hand, Texas. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, guys. <laughs> so let's, let's get right into it. One of the, the biggest stories, I think, heading into this session was the election of a new House Speaker. Um, in light of, of Sine Die, just let, you know, 24 hours ago, how did, how did Dennis Bonin do? What's the initial report card? Well, I would say that Bonin had a superior session. He, uh, he ran a very tight ship. Uh, things didn't get hung up. Personality clashes were at a minimum. And by all definition of grading, you give him an A-plus grade, really, in my opinion. Yeah, he, you know, he's a pretty good mechanic. And, and he was in the house, he was always, you know, he's like a reporter's beacon because you can, if you don't know what's going on in there, you could always, you know, sort of, find Dennis Bonin and you, and you probably found whatever the fight of the moment was, you know, whichever side of it he was on. And he's particularly, he's got a particular knack for being in the middle of big things and for, you know, being mostly a workout artist. And, you know, so that's part of the reason why he got elected speaker. He has that understanding of the house. And I think he was, you know, super present on the floor during this legislative session in a way that, you know, most speakers are not, not just in comparison with Joe Strauss before him, but uh, he was right in the middle of things as a speaker in the same way that he was as a member, and I think, you know, had a pretty good session. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, before he became speaker, he was always in the middle of whatever deal was being made on the House floor, and so that translated very much into how he works as a speaker, and uh, he just, he loves it. And he, he lives for that moment when he can bring everybody to the table. And not every, nobody's going to get everything they wanted, right. but he's going to get something done. To Ross's point about the comparison to the la last speaker, which will inevitably be unfair to the last speaker. Um, we had the first open speakers race in 25 years. Turned out, Jason, not to be much of a speaker's race, right, after all. Um, uh, it was over before it started. But the reality is it was a race. And like a presidential race, I have to believe, we have a lot of experience with open speakers races lately. It's ostensibly about the next few years, but it's really about the past few years. 
It's as much about what just happened as about what's about to happen. So the comparisons to Strauss were inevitably going to be a driver. And I think Speaker Strauss is unfairly viewed as not tough. But he was going to be viewed as not tough compared to Dennis Bonin, no matter what, because Bonin's whole, his lead is his personality. It was said about Joe Strauss often that he showed up at a knife fight with a butter knife. When it came to fights against the Senate or maybe even fights within the House, Dennis Bonin showed up at a knife fight with that sword from Kill Bill, right? Nobody doubted Dennis Bonin's toughness. And I think that Bonin's affect as speaker was as much a defining, maybe the defining feature of this entire session, because the House was not going to get rolled by the Senate. He was not going to tolerate any crap from within the body. And I think that the, the tone of the session was set by the outcome of the Speaker's race. And I think that the, the session proceeded on a relatively even keel as a consequence of that as much as anything. Right? What about the two other members of the big three? Did we see a different Governor Abbott Lieutenant Governor Patrick this session in terms of how they worked with the speaker and how they uh, handled their own kind of domains? I would say that Abbott's approach to hands-on legislation was certainly more gripping, if you will, than it had been previously and it was in, intended to be. I think that he had been hurt by hands-off. He, he worked members, he made priorities clear, he worked it well in advance of the session. And I think, you know, the idea of we're going to work together as working apart and also having hands-on really enabled him to put, you know, his imprint on legislation that previously things happened and <clears throat> whether for better or for worse, it was without his imprint. It was, his imprint was on legislation this session. It was because he tried and his staff tried and they did an excellent job. The, the knock on him, you remember, Patrick, at the end of the 2017 session was that he was governor absent. You heard this from people walking up and down Congress Avenue, that he chose not to involve himself in some of these fights between the House and Senate or on some of the big issues until the last minute or not at all. And from the very beginning of this session, the governor was engaged. Governor had a really good session. It's easy to talk about this as a great session because the speaker had a great session. We knocked the governor when the governor should be knocked. Any governor, let's give the governor credit in this case. I think the governor had a great session. Michelle, I won't pitch you, against, pitch you against, against the governor specifically, but you've obviously been involved in education issues for a number of sessions now. Did you see uh, a different approach from him on those issues versus last session? I think that he's certainly learning, yeah. you know, how he, what kind of governor he wants to be and when he wants to engage in the process. But some of this has to do with the issues that he heard from voters that they wanted right. to talk about this session. Um, and so last session it was a lot of hot-button issues, bathrooms, vouchers, whatever. And, you know, we started the session in a very different place this time with them saying, we're not going to talk about vouchers. And so that's been the trade in previous sessions. It was, if you're going to, if you want school finance, you're going to have to give me vouchers. Right. Um, whereas this session, it was, okay, vouchers are off the table. If you want school finance, we're going to have to do property tax relief. And so that's, I, I think that's kind of why it felt like it had this kumbaya mm -hmm. moment, because they took something so controversial off the table right at the beginning of session and said, okay, let's find something that we can all work on together. Right, right. Definitely want to get to elections both, both in 2018 and 2020, but just going back to my initial question, what do we think of Dan Patrick's uh, performance this session versus the, the previous two sessions we saw him as, as lieutenant governor? You know, a lot of this was, I think Patrick um, has, Patrick in the 17th session was the most assertive of the three. And, and it was Patrick's session in, in, in large measure. 
partly because, you know, Abbott wasn't as engaged, partly because Joe Strauss was, you know, a little bit, you know, calmer presence than, than Dennis Bonin. I think the, the combination of what happened in the 2018 elections and of Abbott's decision to play and, and to get assertive, and I would credit part of that, you know, to go back to the last question, to him hiring some staffers who really have some legislative expertise. You know, Abbott came up through the AG's office, through the courts. He's not a legislative guy, and he got uh, three staffers in particular this time who really know their way around the legislature, Luis Sines, Walter Fisher, um, Tommy Williams, and, you know, you need to go talk to that guy, you need to go talk to that guy. They, they kind of had a better system this time. Abbott asserted himself. Um, Patrick pulled back a little bit. Um, I think Who would have imagined that the lieutenant governor would be the least assertive of the big three this session? Yeah. Right. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say he was the least assertive. <laughs> <laughs> of, of, of those three? No, I think, I think he's, I often, you know, number one, Patrick had absolute power until this last election cycle. Right. He got whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted it. Few people ever experienced that. All right, so you're measuring this past session against that session, and that's not fair. The body changed, the personalities changed, and I thought he played the game that was presented to him. It wasn't he was trying to be the bull in the china shop or, the, you know, the bull that carried the china shop with him, whatever you want to call it. Right. And, and as a result, I, I didn't think it was being less assertive. I thought it was being more astute. And I think he, if he had not been astute and played it the way he had, then he would have been criticized roundly for not reading the tea leaves. But, but he didn't challenge the House frontally the way he had challenged the House in the, in, in the past. And I agree with you that elections have consequences and it's a different day now than it was before the last election. Um, there was not what I had taken, I wonder if you took it this way, to be this um, just barely under the surface competition with the governor that we had seen in the past. Well, I think that that competition was felt by both sides. When you have an assertive person, three people who feel like they're equals, although they're not, and one is very assertive because he has absolute power, yeah, yeah then you feel it could be threatening to someone else who feels like they're a contemporary. Right. A uh, you know, last session, we, we, we asked ourselves, and, and uh, he answered sometimes without our asking, was he going to challenge Abbott for governor? I don't think anybody's asking that question today, right? Well, I think, you know, if, like I say, power has a way of, it's intoxicating. And if, you, if you get your way on everything, you get used to having your way on everything. And that's, that's well, a that's hard true. habit to break. That's true. Well, well now yeah. we're asking him if he's going to join the Trump administration every week. <laughs> that would seem to be a persistent rumor throughout the session. Do you guys take him at his word that he's staying put? That he's the best job in the world but right Let now? me just say this, and I, I've heard that rumor and over and over. And very credible sources said that the FBI conducted a background investigation on him for an appointment. Now, I believe this person. This person is in a position to know whether that took place or not. I take it on faith that an FBI investigation has been done on Dan Patrick. Now, whether Dan Patrick wants that position, that's a different story. But it has prepared, the table is set, should he want it. He'd take him at his word that he doesn't. Well, presumably he, he cooperated with that. I mean, he, he, it yeah. was done willingly, no, right? No, no, of course. Why would he say not? Why? <laughs> They're doing what? <laughs> Stop. <laughs> 
Check out old Bill Miller making news here. Actually. <laughs> I was going to say, we have to put in a request for comment with Patrick Thomas. Right, exactly. <laughs> Text Sherry right now. <laughs> um, you guys all mentioned the, the 2018 elections. Uh, to what extent, uh, I know I think you, where we're going on this, but to what extent do you think that set the table for this session in terms of the issues that they focused on and how much they focused on the issues? I know that someone like Dan Patrick will never publicly admit that this agenda was shaped by having a closer race than ever in November, but how much do you think that the results that people like him and some state house members saw shaped the, the agenda this session? Education people were all over it. Yeah, it was, it was huge. And it was, it was a lot of groundwork that we laid, you know, Going back to after, the yeah, after the last session, um, we were on massive road trips with a lot of education associations talking about now is the time for school finance reform. Um, and so it was a lot of people beating the drum uh, coming into this session. And then we had the School Finance Commission for a year. Um, so those of us who've been involved in that since January, February of 2018, it's just you know, th those were the issues that everybody was talking about coming into the elections. Um, we did a poll for our organization and there was an open-ended question that said, what do you think the number one issue of the session should be? Didn't prompt them at all. And I think over 65% of people said education needs to be the top issue this session. And um, so that's just where everybody naturally headed, I think. You know, teacher pay raises, Recapture has gotten out of control. I mean, all these things that everybody's been wanting to talk about for a while, and we have money to spend, and now now is the time to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. What about the, the state house members? I mean, a lot of them ended up in pretty close races, some of them unexpectedly. So how, how strong of a message do you think they got from the election? I think it changed the Senate. I think, you know, that's to sure. Bill's point about, you know, pa um, Patrick had absolute power over the Senate. He had the Senate Bob Bullock always wanted, you know, for a couple of sessions there, and then, they lost a couple of seats and they had a couple of personality incidents and, you know, all of a sudden that was a little bit off the leash. So I think it changed the Senate. I think it tempered the House. Um, having 83 to 67 is, you know, not as, not as cool as having 95 to 55, right? And, and you don't have as much room. Uh, Dennis Bonin came in, unlike Strauss, he came in with a Republican majority, wasn't tagged with having a bunch of Democrats in his, in his cohort. But in fact, he did have a bunch of Democrats in his cohort. You know, he wasn't, he's not a Democratic speaker, uh, he, and he didn't get tagged that way as Strauss did, but he got elected with something of the same coalition. And um, I think the House, on a number of points, you know, there were places where the Republicans with a bigger majority might have pressed where they didn't, and a lot of places where they just didn't engage in fights. You know, a great example of this was at, on this last weekend, the governor's office came in late with $100 million for border security, and they basically said, we're going to spend this money on the border uh, out of the rainy day fund, and the federal government's going to pay us back. And it suddenly appears in the appropriations bill, and 24 hours later, they come in with a technical amendment that takes it back out of the appropriations bill. Well, never mind, we're not going to do that. And what happened in the meantime was the Democrats in the House, uh, Mexican-American Legislative Caucus and some others, came in and said, you know, you need two-thirds to get that out of the rainy day fund, and you don't have it. Um, so it was one of the few times when the, the partisan uh, thing reared up. Um, but I think, you know, all of those election results uh, changed this legislature, made it a little bit, you know, uh, moderated it a little bit. Can I agree with you on the House and not on the Senate, Ross? Sure. I, I think that the politics of the House did change because you had 12 Democratic pickups and another 10 that were so close, or 10 or so that were so close, that the members who won their seats back barely 
had reason to stay on the leash and are looking ahead. To, I know we're going to talk about the next elections, had reasons to be concerned in the next session. I can't think of an instance, unless I'm just totally blanking, in which the Senate behaved materially differently as a consequence of the last election than they did this time. There were still the usual couple of Democrats who, if you waved a pork chop in front of them, would cross over and vote with the Republicans. I, don't, I can't think of an issue. David Whitley. Okay, I mean, maybe, <laughs> honestly, so honestly, the, the David, but, but, hold, but hold on, I'm, I'm, prepared, to say, I'm yeah. prepared to say that David Whitley doesn't get um, through regardless. David, the David Whitley situation was a complete cell phone. I don't think the elections killed David Whitley. I think David Whitley killed David Whitley. On the substantive stuff, I'm just having a hard time thinking of any bill that Dan Patrick wanted or that the Senate would have otherwise passed that they didn't. How, I mean, I, I'm just asking in a respectful way. Yeah, I don't have a list in my Bring head. the receipts. Like, where, where, is, where is the political change to the Senate manifest itself in the byproduct of this session? I think in terms of speed, in terms of litany of issues, he was slow to come forward, it was slow to develop. Things got, were just slowed down before. Was, I mean, it was like yeah, that. Top, top I mean, 30 bills by March 15th, yeah, right? no, I mean, it's, 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 I want three bottles of water. You got three bottles of water. That's the way it works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about the two top issues of the session, I think, by, by most accounts, which was uh, school finance and, and property taxes. We'll start with, with property taxes, reform, and relief. Um, how substantive of a victory was this for state leaders based on what was promised versus what we substantively ended up with? Uh, beyond the surface of just the kind of triumphant press conferences and, and news releases. Um, how, how do you score the, the kind of policy win uh, that they achieved on that? Well, a lot if of you this, agree it's a win. A lot of this is tangled <laughs> up in the education. Sure, world, yeah, right? it's hard it to talk yeah. about them separately. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's some across-the-board tax compression in the school finance bill, but it's something that's going to get eaten up really quickly by rising property values. Um, and so the governor wanted something on top of that, which resulted in the 2.5% tax compression that's separate from what the cities and counties are dealing with. There's additional tax compression um, in HB3 that's going to be incredibly expensive. Um, you know, there's $5 billion of it in this bill, and it's going to increase by about an additional billion dollars every year to come. And so that's why you saw a lot of people at the microphone when the bill passed saying, this is going to be an issue that we're going to have to deal with when we come back session after session because it's just going to keep rolling. Um, and so uh, the, the concern is that, you know, even if they have enough money to pay for it in future biennia, that it's going to cut out, you know, being able to spend anything else, you know, education, healthcare, whatever, it's just going to eat up all the money. Um, so people are going to see a little bit of tax relief. You asked, you know, is it going to make a difference? I, I think in some cases they will. Um, but we just have this huge conversation that we're going to have to have moving forward that's going to be really difficult when they come back in, you know, 2021 or 2023 and say, look, we just can't afford this anymore, and that's not going to be a popular conversation. When you say expensive have. on compression, it means that when the school districts hold down their tax rate, the mm -hmm. state has to make up the money? That's right. right. Yeah. And it's a billion a and year? And it's, it's what we ask them to do, right? We right. pushed all session to say local value growth needs to stay in education. That was one of our big talking points, that, you know, the state's having to put in less money, so that savings needs to be kept in education. They're totally doing that now, right. but the way that they're doing it is just going to be really, really expensive moving forward. 
and they, they get to claim a victory for it, you know, and go home and, and run for office, and, you know, I get it. Um, and like I said, we asked them to have this conversation, and they had it. And, but we're, we're going to have to deal with it moving forward. On, on HB3, school finance education in particular, mm -hmm. what stood out to you the most from the, the final product, based, just based on your experience? Yeah, there, you I mean, it's... It's good that we're having this conversation a few days after the passage of the bill. Those of us that, you know, when you do a big omnibus bill, nobody feels really great about it, you know, but, but stepping back, it's a huge win for education. There's $6.5 billion of, of new money there that's going to make a difference in the classroom, whether it's focusing on our neediest kids, high-quality full-day pre-K for eligible students, um, an increase in the basic allotment, there's an increase in teacher compensation, and so when you step back and look at it, you have to acknowledge that this was an amazing bill, and Dan Huberty and Larry Taylor did an incredible amount of work that started, you know, not just during the session, but during the School Finance Commission as well. Um, there's a lot of technical details that they're going to have to work out. There's a lot of authority that's given to the uh, TEA's commissioner um, that we're going to have to work through in rulemaking. Um, but well, it's it's a it's a good bill. You've been around long enough to be cynical about everything. Uh, maybe yeah. a little bit. Yes. <laughs> so you you think that historic is the right adjective to describe transformative? It? I would say super successful. Transformative is in the you know the sands of time. We'll see. You know, if things look great today, take success when you find it. You know, because failure is just around the corner at any time. We yep. can't predict the future, but hey, it was, a, it was a good session. Big bills, you know, they kudos all around. They're deserved. But I wouldn't say that it's going to change the way we live. I would say wait 10 years and see how we're living and see if then point yep. to this and say, did this really make, was this the pivotal change? I just say <clears throat> withhold judgment until a little more time has passed. But every, in the meantime, kudos for the effort because it wouldn't have happened without an effort of everyone. Two defining things I think about the education bill. One is that past education chairs, including one related to somebody on stage, had tried valiantly in the past to do a big overhaul of public education finance and were unsuccessful, not because of their own efforts, but because this is hard. We've been at this for a long time. I interviewed Speaker Craddock not long ago asked him about what they were talking about at the Capitol on the first day he walked in the building in January of 1969 and he said school finance reform. This is something we've been talking about for a long time. And the fact that they were able to get something meaningfully done, at least what appears to be meaningful, is significant considering how many people have tried previously. The second thing is, and I think this is notable, that mostly when the legislature has dealt with this issue in the past, it's been because the courts forced them to do it. And there was no gun to the heads of the legislature this time. This was done because they realized they had to do it. There were electoral guns of a sort. But this, there was not a legal challenge to this that was going to force their hands. Um, I think we have to give Dan Huberty and Larry Taylor a lot of credit. You know, once, once a Texas Monthly editor, always a Texas Monthly editor, I always think about the end of a session in terms of best and worst lists. And the fact is that Huberty and Taylor would have been bests, as far as I'm concerned, under any circumstances for having pulled off this thing that is close to a magic act. And having gotten this done, now Bill's exactly right. We're not going to know whether this bill makes as far as having significant impact for a, for a while. But the fact that it got done, it's pretty significant, I think. 
Yeah, you're not going to know if this works unless you, until and unless you get a cohort of kids who are performing better than the previous cohort of kids, right? I mean, that's really the measure is, are we producing better education for these kids? And, and you know, I think a couple of things came together this time that made this possible. I, you know, all credit to the guys who pulled this through, but it helps a great deal when you walk in and you have $9 billion more dollars at the beginning of a session than you had two years earlier, and when you have for various political reasons, convinced everybody to uncork the, the rainy day fund, finally. And, you know, they got into the rainy day fund for $6 billion. They had $9 billion out front. It's a tremendous increase in spending this time. You know, one of the things that's hard about big things like school finance and health and human services is little tiny moves cost billions and billions of dollars. I think the number on, you know, when they first started talking about tax cuts, I think somebody over uh, at... Texas Taxpayers Association told me that um, a dime cut in school property taxes is $2.7 billion in state money. So a little change is a lot of money. This bill has a lot of money. I think the final education bill was 11.6. Um, it's got the ongoing costs in the future, House Bill 2, um, rather Senate Bill 2. You know, the, the cuts to uh, property taxes there are expensive. I think a lot of this starts with they came in and they had a lot of money with which to make their moves. And, and let's acknowledge, I hope we'll talk about the size of the state budget overall. Maybe that's not a question that you're going to talk about. But so much for this being a conservative state with a conservative budget. Goodness gracious, we're spending so much money in this budget compared to previous years. We went from $216 billion, give or take, in the budget two years ago to $250 billion in this budget, and we passed a $9.9 .9 billion supplemental. So we increased the 216 to 226. We spent $260 billion in this session. This is the first quarter billion dollar budget in the history of the state of Texas, right? Yeah, quarter just, trillion, yeah. Quarter tr trillion, pardon me. Just yeah. for Article Three alone, it was a 16% increase um, in the spending for Article Three. If you take out the property tax relief, it's a little over 10%. So that is huge. And you're exactly right that it's, it's the, the public education community has to figure out how to improve student outcomes, right? That was a right. huge conversation this session, that if we're going to increase the amount of money that we're spending on education, we've got to be able to prove that we're making a difference. I think that starts with pre-K, which is why we had a huge conversation about getting kids into full-day pre-K. Yeah. Um, but it's going to take, you know, four or five years, Bill, before we really see um, that making a difference for those kids. And, and then we as an education community have to tell that story. And tell it in a way that's going to be impactful. And you would acknowledge that politically, this is a good issue to go back home and run on, right? Yeah, but I want to <clears throat> save my thought on that. Let me just interject one thing. You had Democrats had a good election cycle. Yep. So they picked up seats across the board. Any place you look, local, state, they did great, okay? You got a state that's busting at the seams with dough, right? I mean, it's crazy. Look around Austin, look at the property values, go to the Permian Basin, go anywhere. There's a lot of money, more money, and I told Chairman Heflin, who was chairman of appropriations, that wasn't that long ago he was chairman, but the difference in era, it's like a different planet, okay? It's not the same place. You have the Democrats doing well, you've had a cycle of six years where it's less, 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 all of a sudden Democrats are on the trend line, and you got so much money, you don't know what to do with it. Right. You got to spend some. You have to. You'd be nuts not to. I'm not saying everyone up there is a brilliant politician because they're not. 
But the people that are leading are smart enough to read those tea leaves, and they did wisely. Yeah, yeah. Do want to ask about the next election cycle, but first, what other issues do you think help tell the story of this session? There was obviously very intense focus at the top and by many lawmakers on school finance and property taxes, but you know, 24 hours after signing die, what other issues do you think were maybe under uh, overlooked or underappreciated in this session? I, I want to name two things that didn't actually have enormous success, but I think are leading indicators of where things are going, not just at the legislature, but kind of in the world. This session, both marijuana and LGBTQ issues migrated from the fringe to the mainstream. You did not necessarily see bills pass in every case, but you saw a conversation take place, whether it was hearings or I, I'm susceptible to the idea that bringing issues into the conversation is part of this whole, it's a marathon and not a sprint idea. This is a long game. And I think you saw issues come off the sidelines that I think are gonna be back. And you're, you're seeing even in the most conservative Texas legislature that you could imagine a, a willingness to entertain aspects of the modern world leeching onto our shores. And we see conservative states all around us taking steps that we've not yet taken but I think we're moving in a direction that I, quite frankly, a few years ago, wouldn't have believed we'd be willing to entertain. Yeah, what, what other conversations were, were notable beside? You know, we had two issues that would have been major issues, you know, if they never touched school finance or property taxes. You know, Hurricane Harvey was a giant thing and, and they spent a lot of money on it and spent a lot of time on it. There was a lot of interim work on it. It helps that, you know, a lot of this sort of took place in the initial disaster assistance and that there was, you know, the legislature was largely doing cleanup, but they did a lot of work on that. And they did a lot of work, and um, you know, I'll credit the governor with, with getting ahead of this on school safety, and you know, after the Sutherland Springs shooting and after the Santa Fe High School shooting, he put together those round tables. He really did a good job of bringing in the people he agreed with and the people he disagreed with, the whole range, and they came out with, it was wobbly a couple of times in the session, but they came out with a, a package of things that I think are probably you know, major responses to those. I think those were, um, those are going to get marked as major issues that got addressed in this, uh, in, in this session, the, the, the hurricane stuff and the school safety stuff. That'll help, yeah. Right. Bill, what, what issues policy-wise stood out to you beneath the surface? <clears throat> I agree with Evan. You know, historically, when I first started doing this business, you looked at Florida, California, New York, Texas as driving public policy issues. And smaller states took their lead from these larger states as they initiated whatever the case may be. Now that's not the case, and I think Evan's point about you know the two issues he mentioned, criminal justice reform, is something that historically we've been tough on criminals, quote unquote. You know, life imprisonment for possession of marijuana. Joy of busting rocks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When a Republican primary by showing guys busting rocks, exactly. And now you have grand jury reform, bail bond reform. They didn't make it, but they are right in the middle of the debate. And they have energized people in a way that I, I should have seen. Kind of worked on one of those issues. And I can just see these issues. They're migrating in. They're migrating from states that not historically have been the leaders on public policy issues. Now, there were a lot of times during the session, Patrick, when I thought, I can't believe we're not addressing X. I mean, I do think that one of the byproducts of a session that was so heavily focused on public education and property tax 
is that it was hard to get attention for any other issue if you were not public education or property tax, right? You jumped up and down, stamped your feet, waved your hands, tried to get the attention of the legislature, and it was very difficult to do that, whether it was transportation, which is a big ticket item in the budget, or healthcare, which is a big ticket item in the budget to name two. The, the value of being ignored is that it's the same as being left alone, right? They don't meddle, get in your face if, you, if they also ignore you. But right. I, I think that one of the unspoken downsides of the session is that there were a lot of things that simply did not get much attention from this legislature that are, are not exactly ticking time bombs, but are big budget items that we're going to need to address at some point. There are a lot of programs, you know, at any given time in, in state government, there are a lot of programs that are sort of redlining. Right, you can kind of get away with it, and you know maybe nothing will go wrong over there. Maybe nothing will go wrong over there, and boom, all of a sudden you've yeah. got a flare. And, and an example know? would be that for ten consecutive years in this country, the, the the number of uninsured children year after year was declining until last year when it went back up. Texas is the number one state in the country in terms of the number of uninsured children, and right now Texas is adding annually more uninsured children to the state's rolls than we are children to the public schools. Of Texas. It's kind of a hard statistic to believe is true, but it apparently is true. And you know, from what I can tell, while there were nibbles around the edges of the healthcare question and uninsured challenge, particularly in Texas, there was not meaningful work done on those issues this session because everybody's attention was focused on other things. And we know that healthcare costs are a significant percentage of the state budget. So it, it just said sort of in a general way, I think there were probably things that didn't get done that are going to sit on the sidelines for only a short period of time before we have to address it. I'm, I'm curious about something that didn't come up, even though it was sort of like close to the middle of the table, and you'll know the answer to this. Somehow we went all the way through public education this time without talking much at all about charter schools or vouchers. And those have been in the way of, you know, I mean, those have been one of the, the impediments to getting big things done in previous sessions. What the heck? Well, I mean, they started out the session saying vouchers are off the table. And so vouchers were off the table completely. Um, charters, actually, there were a ton of bills that were filed dealing with charter legislation, but they concentrated them all into pretty much one day in House Pub Ed and just spent the whole day talking about it, and it was brutal. Um, and there were, there were a few things that got done um, and, and, and tacked onto other bills, but it wasn't a huge conversation, I yeah. think, just because we spent school finance, like Evan said, just sucked up all the oxygen in the room, and so we, there were things that we didn't talk about. Um, one of the things on charters that I'm interested in seeing play out is, um, I think it was an Ernest Bales bill that hitched a ride that they're going to have a common application now for mm -hmm. charter schools where if you want to apply for a charter, it's going to be one application instead of every single charter school having their own application process. And that's going to give us a lot of really good data on, you know, where kids are wanting to, you know, move from a traditional mm -hmm. campus to a charter school and what, what kind of kids are applying and getting accepted and all those things. So there was some, there was some movement on that, but... Uh, it was, it was a school finance well, session. So we started 2015 with uh, Greg Abbott and Dan Patrick at a school choice rally, and, or 2017. And, and then we come into this and they've taken it off the table. Well, here's happened. where the elections had consequences because if the votes weren't there in a 95-55 house, the votes were certainly not there in an 83-67 house. Right? As a, just, as a practical, or do you think as a practical matter, that was not going anywhere? It's just weird to see something drop like that. Evan, you mentioned earlier the complaints about the budget. You also, we have also mentioned issues that didn't make it to the finish right. line. Some of the outside groups on the right are already bitterly complaining about what didn't pass 
um, this session. How, how valid is that criticism this time around, and, and how much does it matter politically given the, the changing landscape here in Texas? Does it, does it resonate as much as, as it would have, or move lawmakers as much as it would have in previous sessions? I think if the outside groups had any power politically, you might have seen people in the building afraid of them. Right. And it appears to me that this session may be singular among sessions I've seen in the recent, in the recent era. I didn't see that the outside groups had anybody's attention in terms of being able to make them afraid of casting votes. This didn't seem to be a scorecard session the way that some other sessions have Can been Can I recently. call one exception to that? It was okay. Senate Bill 29 which is the taxpayer-funded lobbying bill. Yeah, but it didn't pass. Yeah, I know, but it was, it almost passed, and it was fascinating to talk to some of the members who didn't want to vote for that bill, and they said, Michelle, I have to vote for that bill because it's going to be something that I'm going to have to run on the next time I, I come around. I don't think that the Northeast Tarrant Tea Party or the Empower Texans folks beat anybody in an election next time over, over, that any, bill. over any votes that were cast in this session. I just don't. I, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, one, one way to spin that is that different outside groups were influential this time, and, 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 you know, we've just changed a little bit. You know, it wasn't constitutional carry that had the day. It wasn't, you know, this issue or that issue. But, you know, I think there are probably some legislators who would tell you, you know, there was a lot of heat from education groups. So AFT is before, the new Empower Texans? I'm sorry? AFT, AFT is the new Empower Texans? Well, I don't know that anybody <laughs> asserted themselves in the same way, but I just think in terms of influence, the groups from outside that, were, that had their ears this time were education groups in a way that you know, maybe they didn't in 2017 or 2015, and the groups that had their ear in those years was going to kind of push to the back. I think education groups are doing a better job of finding their voice. I mean, there's so many advocacy associations, and one, ours is one of them, that um, they're using social media and, you know, ramping up just right. to, in a way that we haven't seen before. Teachers getting engaged in a way we haven't seen before. There's Facebook groups that have tens of thousands of people that were angry about, you know, whether it's teacher pay raises or whatever. Um, <laughs> nicely done. And <laughs> so that they're just, they're making a lot of noise that they haven't made before and it's getting people's attention. Yeah. But does that necessarily mean that there are consequences in the next election. So what I hear is the point you're trying to make is what happened this past five months, how it will affect the future sure, election yeah, we can go cycle. There. I say it's moot. I'll tell you why. Because it's a national election. Yeah, it's a I think president. That's right. Nobody cares what happened in the last five months. They care a little bit. It's not going to sway any elections. What's going to sway elections? Who's at the top of the ticket right. at the national level, what they're saying and what they're doing. That's the outcome. So what they did here, and they can take all the credit they want, much of it is deserved and happy for them. But if they think they're going to change the outcome of this next election cycle, they're crazy. So positive and negative. So people who go back home and campaign on, I cut your property taxes, which will be false, by the way. All they did was restrain the rate of growth. Or they say, we fix school finance, probably also false. But if they go home and say that stuff, that's not going to have an impact in the positive. It's, no, it's, Get you, can argue, you can argue the point, and you should. You yeah. make the point about what you did for people. You always do, and you always defend what people say you did to them, right? That goes with the territory. But in a presidential election cycle, such as one we're entering into, which is unchartered territory in terms of animosity and money and everything else, all those issues, they, they get drowned out 
this is all about the national cycle, yeah. purely. But happy for the legislature to have done as well as they did, and they have bragging rights for as long as they last, but they don't are going to last long. Uh, Bill, are you referring to the primary as much as the general when you're talking about things being nationalized? I, you know, I'm, I'm saying the, the general election. Yeah. yeah, the primary is always a little different deal. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think I agree with you on that mostly. You know, the, the people who cast the lone no votes on things may have to eat those during the election cycle a little bit. I mean, I have a hard time believing just to pick on Representative Stickland for a second. He's going to have a dog problem. I think he's going to, I think, I think Representative Stickland is going to have some issues during the election cycle that have nothing to do with the presidential campaign. He may cheat death as he's cheated death in the past. But, but I would probably agree with you that I'd like to, tell me who the Democratic nominee and running mate is, right? Tell me who the Democratic candidate against Senator Cornyn is. And tell me what the voter turnout number is. And I'll be able to tell you in a, in a more thoughtful way what the likelihood of the election outcome is, right? In a general not election. Not knowing that we're not going to know. I mean, I heard Representative Capriglione say in the last week or so, he thought that we might have turnout of 11.5 million in the next election. If we have turnout of 11.5 million in the next election, you're exactly right about it being uncharted territory. Like a Godzilla movie. Right. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. 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 It, going back to the primaries, though, Michelle, you mentioned like the taxpayer-funded lobbying ban, for example. What... What issues do you think are going to be not used against members, but what, what um, issues do you think Republican members are going to be, need to be cognizant about in these primaries to the extent that this is even going to be an active or action-packed primary season? I mean, on an education front, I think they're going to have to be really careful about how they message the wins from this session, whether it's property tax relief or reform or um, teacher compensation. I mean, when we started the session, we had a, a major bill that was going to have an across-the-board teacher pay raise, and the result of House Bill 3 is that I think most teachers are going to see a, they're going to see a raise, but it's not going to be what was talked about at the beginning of session, and, and legislators are going to have to have a response for that. Um, it's a much more flexible plan of give the money to the district, and then they have to spend 30% of it on salaries. Um, but that, those are nuances that are really hard to manage when you get to, you know, running for, for re-election. When did those raises start landing? In September? Or I do they... believe in September, but don't quote me on that. So, but they'll be there by next September, by... Yes, So by certainly. the time the general election comes, teachers will be yeah. getting whatever raise they're getting. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, you know, I think a lot of the, you know, if you go to town halls in the general election in 2020, I think people are going to be asking you whether you're with or against the Trump administration or whether you're with or against whoever the Democratic nominee is and, um, and you know, the stuff down below that, I agree with Bill, I think it will get mostly washed. I do think that there are specific votes that are going to be, that could be, you know, you've got some explaining to do in, in the primaries, particularly for Republicans, that vote on taxpayer-funded lobbyists, you know, that was a, a vote that I think some Republicans are going to have to answer for. There's probably, you know, in a budget of this size and when you're expanding a budget as much as this, a lot of them are going to have to answer for this program or that program. Didn't you vote for a budget that would, whatever the horrible thing is? Um, is the taxpayer-funded lobbying, but is the, is the vote for the taxpayer-funded lobbying on the taxpayer-funded lobbying bill really? In some Republican districts, I think, that's a, I think that's a flare point. So there were six Republicans who ran for speaker the last time. I believe I have this right. 
Speaker didn't vote. Phil King voted for the Middleton bill. Darby, Zerwas, Price, Clardy, Parker all voted against the Middleton bill. I mean, you know, you, you had a lot of Republicans vote against that bill. I think it's going to be hard to hang that, that vote, that one vote around the necks of a lot of Republicans. I mean, I don't really think that there were that many controversial votes taken. I'm going back in my head and going, I can't remember every single bill, every single vote. But I'm asking myself, on the, on the, were there controversial votes that potentially hang around anybody's neck on either side? Mm. Well, I think one of the things, Bonin, you know. I don't think Republicans are going to get beat on the defunding Planned Parenthood bill, which was, you know, it's its own version of controversy in this session. I don't think any Republicans get beat on the Chick-fil-A bill. I mean, I just think these are sort of normal Texas fights that we have at the time, and they seem controversial. But by the election, they all begin to dissipate. One of the things Bonin did a pretty good job of in this session was keeping wedge bills off the floor. Hard votes. Yeah, right. that's interesting. You know, I mean, there were a lot of votes that they could have that's taken that they didn't. But I do think there's a couple. And, you know, then there are the self-selecting, you know, when you decide, you know, I'm just going to take a controversial position right. and vote against, I'm going to vote for the continued tethering of dogs, or I'm going to, you know, you know, take the Jonathan Stickland position on this or that. But, ba but back to Bill, I'm, so I'm interested in Bill's point about, I mean, I would say the national nationalization of this election, I think, is exactly right. Who the Democrats put on that ticket will be important. Where we kind of are in sort of Trumplandia will matter, right? But here's the thing. I do think that there is action on the ballot in Texas in the next election cycle. You know, Dave Carney, the governor's political uh, advisor, strategist, said the other day, seemingly matter-of-factly, in a story in the state, I think it was in the Statesman, there is no chance that the Democrats win back the House next time. I just think that's on its face incorrect. I don't think that there's a good chance. I don't think there's better than a 10% chance, but I don't think there's no chance. We know the seats that were at risk last time and are potentially at risk under the right political circumstances this time. There's action on the ballot next time. And in some respects, again, for those of us who've been watching this for a long time, there's more action on the ballot and more of a possibility of significant change than there's been in a long time. I think it's also possible, depending on who the Democrats put up there, that the Republicans gain some of those seats back. Uh, you know, if, if the Democrats nominate Michael Avenatti and Jesse Smollett as their ticket for president, <laughs> yes, I think that's possible. And I think there's an, you know, and these, uh, these are Democrats. So uh, let's give them the chance of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. But, um, but you know, if it's, if it's something normal, I mean, I don't know that that happens. We got to get to audience questions here, and we're going to start taking them soon. But just one last leftover question I had here. We've talked a lot about how the, the, the political wins that Democrats had heading into this session, how that set the tone for the session. Within the, the span of the session, what do you think were the actual po policy or sub substantive wins for Democrats? I mean, you mentioned kind of laughingly Whitley earlier. Uh, they did hold, you know, stay unified against that nomination. What other things do you think that Democrats could, could point to in terms of how they use their um, expanded numbers this session to uh, you know, cre create good policy outcomes or stop bad policy outcomes in their view? I think it's stopping. Yeah. I think it's arguing that they were able to kind of complete the stop of this rightward trend right. that we've had for six years. And they can claim credit for that. In the House, for sure. They, they absolutely. Absent those persons, there would be that trend line continuing because they felt strong and they were growing in number, Republicans, conservatives, and, and they're exercising their political will as they should. Anyone in that position would, irrespective of party or philosophy. That's just the way you do it. So, yeah, we stopped it. 
And if you give me more of us, we'll turn it around. We won't just stop it, we'll turn, that's the argument, in short. And that energizes a crowd of fellow travelers, always does. I, you know, without putting a hard spin on this, I think that education bill was a more Democratic bill than a Republican one. You know, I was talking to a Republican senator at the time they were talking about the tax swap and in mid-April, and he said, you know, my mom was a Republican, my dad was a Republican, I've been a Republican all my life, and here I am with a $5,000 a year teacher pay raise and a tax increase. Um, you know, the politics of 20, the 2018 election changed this some. It put election, it put education at the top of the plate. That is traditionally slightly more Democratic issue than Republican issue. And this was a giant bill, and they spent a lot of money. They put a lot of money into schools. And I think for Democrats, that would have to count as a win. We woke up one day, and all of a sudden, everybody liked pre-K. That's exactly right. I mean, yeah. you want to talk about the elections <laughs> having consequences in one very direct respect? We went from pre-K being godless socialism to all of a sudden we are Everybody agreed on pre-K. Pre Let's just fight about the details. And we even massive progress. If you're a Democrat, that's massive progress. We even started the session saying, "Don't say pre-K." Everybody was, you know, call it early childhood, call it whatever you want to. Don't call it pre-K. And we ended up the session with everybody in the House and the Senate saying that pre-K is the magic bullet, which I love. Um, and I think if you drill into the school finance bill in, you know, specifically. It's, it's very, eh, it's maybe not so much anymore, but it's, it's primarily focused in the urban areas, which is where our Democrats are. So, right. you know, Dallas ISD was a huge part of the conversation this session and differentiated pay and the ACE program. And, um, and so I, I, I hope that our rural members who work so hard on this bill will see the same kind of benefit from HB3 that the, the the urban areas are gonna see, whether it's through recapture or merit pay or things like that. Okay, I think we'd like to take some, some audience questions if you guys have any of them. All right, good morning. Senate Bill 9 seemed to have momentum and the votes necessary to pass from the House, but then it kind of just disappeared. I was wondering if you all knew uh, what happened or what do you think happened with Senate Bill 9 and do you anticipate a return in next session? Senate Bill 9 was the election so bill. Voting. Right. Voter suppression bill. Yeah, it, you know, this was one of those things where the, you know, you drop the hockey puck and, and basically they begin by disagreeing over what the bill is and is for and does. And it starts as a partisan fight. And so there was, you know, not really ever a conversation about this is not completely true, but there was never, you know, really a full conversation outside of politics about what the bill would do. The one part of the bill that everybody agreed to was paper ballots, and they took it out <laughs> and, and just left the stuff in that only the Republicans wanted. The Democrats saw this as a move to suppress voting, particularly for disabled Texans, uh, but also for minorities, uh, for people with uh, Spanish surnames. and. Um, they successfully killed it. And you know, this is on the, I would put this on the roster of question earlier about things that the Democrats stopped. Um, the, it didn't help that bill at all that the Secretary of State started the session by trying to purge the voter rolls of a bunch of people who turned out to be citizens. Um, so, you know, I, th I think that fell into the, this might have passed in a different session. Uh, it clearly wasn't going to pass in this session, and you know we'll see if it comes back. I doubt they'll take it up in a redistricting year, but we'll see in 2021. Yeah, that was one of those controversial bills that just didn't make it out of the calendars committee on, I think it was on the, the last deadline, right? Right. 
Right. So pretty, pretty deliberate, I think, example of House leadership keeping something pretty politically radioactive off the floor. Yeah, that was a, you know, on the, on, on any day in the House, that would have been a bomb, but on the last weekend, it would have been a, a huge bomb. And, and when they had the, the plates finally moving into place on the things that they wanted to get done, the budget, school finance, uh, property taxes, I, I think they didn't want to risk, you know, nine or anything like that. One uncommented or undercommented upon thing I think this session was that last session, everyone was prepared to blame the committee chairs secretly doing the bidding of the speaker. So it was uh, Byron Cook at State Affairs. It was Todd Hunter at Calendars, right? Todd Hunter, right. This time you had Dade Phelan at State Affairs and Ford Price at, at uh, Calendars. And nobody said, well, uh, look look at these liberals who are running these committees and they're the ones who are actually, no, I mean, there was no there was no discussion of that either. It was just a very different conversation. So in a previous session, the disappearance of that bill from the radar screen would have been blamed on string pulling at the committee level by the chair at the behest of the speaker. It just went away. It just magically disappeared. Now, I think it, was, it might have been part of a negotiated deal on some other stuff. In other words, we're going to do SB 22 or we're going to do SB 1978. And in lieu of those things, to do that, we're going to get rid of some of these other things. Putting Senate Bill 9 on the floor at the end would have been a, almost a bigger political statement than killing it in calendars was. Right. Uh, Ross, you mentioned that there was a, this was a huge increase in the state budget. Um, I'm curious about, are we just catching up to 2011? Um, our population growth has been huge, and I wonder if this growth has been a pace with population growth, and then also, um, this was a huge increase in education spending, but if we're going to actually improve student outcomes instead of just letting them continue to fall off as we, as we have more and more low-income kids, uh, uninsured kids, et cetera, it seems like we would have, have to get from the, toward the bottom of the barrel of average student spending toward the middle of the barrel. And I understand that a $6 billion increase doesn't get us too far, and it would cost $40 billion to get us to average spending per kid. So if we want real student outcomes and not just catching up and tremendous number of um, teachers leaving the profession, it would have to have been an even bigger investment. Do you think that there will be even potentially more investment next session? Can I, can I dream of that? You can dream whatever you want. <laughs> I, you know, that's really a question for Michelle. I, you know, I, whether they're going to do more money or not, this budget raises some serious questions about whether they can support in the next couple of budgets the programs that they funded in this budget. Um, you know, the billion dollars a year uh, that she's talking about. Some of the running costs here are going to be very interesting, and they, they've financed this budget in part with $6 billion in rainy day money. Most of that, I think, is on one-time things, but not all of it, and they've got to find that money somewhere. So. There's a lot out there, but as, as far as replacing 2011, I don't know where they are on that. Yeah, so the great irony is in 2011, they cut $5.4 billion, and they put $6 billion in, you know, this year. So one of my good lobby friends says we basically just hit, hit the reset button, but not even with inflation from 2011. So are we just back to where we were then, finally, 
and what do we do moving forward? Um, I think that with the $6 billion that they're putting in this session specifically for education, that still leaves us at 43rd in the nation as far as per student spending. We might get to 42nd and beat Nevada. Um, but And we're getting surprisingly good outcomes for the money that we're spending. We're middle of the pack for student performance, but we're 43rd in the country as far as spending. So it's a tough question of are we satisfied with being in the middle of the pack? We're getting a lot of bang for our buck if you look at it that way. Um, and my answer is no, of course. And I think the, the conversation from the School Finance Commission is certainly we're not happy with those outcomes. And it's going to take a lot of money and a lot of um, focusing on particular ways to improve student performance that, um, for me, I think a lot of what we want to focus on next session for our association is making sure that our teachers have the training they need to really get to that third grade literacy target or whatever, um, <clears throat> because I think they're doing the best they can with the education that they've been given as teachers and with the resources that they have. They're not just waiting around for somebody to say, hey, we'll dangle a carrot out there for you. You know, you dance and get better student outcomes and we'll pay you more money on the back end. That's ludicrous. They're doing the best they can with the resources that they've been given. Um, so whether it's more money or more training, those are, th those are serious conversations that we're going to have to have moving forward. Sarah Davis worked really closely with the Health and Human Services Commission and advocacy groups to improve Medicaid managed care oversight. What will it take to get that passed? Uh, part of it's money. Um, you know, part of it is attention. You know, this is the session we kind of hit that. We, this is the session we were paying attention to something else. Um, you know, that um, I guess everybody sort of, you know, starts a session or starts before a session saying, you know, we're the thing to pay attention to. And I think that'll be one of the candidates for that. You know, there's a bunch of um, as you know, I mean, if you've read the Dallas Morning News series that just ran, you know, there's a, there still are a bunch of troublesome contracts at HHSC and over in that, in that universe and that needs a lot of, you know, oversight attention, that needs a lot of attention. There's always a question in those programs of whether the money's going in the right place and whether adequate money is going into the programs we've got. Nursing homes were up there again with a, with a fight this year and on and on and on. Um, Part of it in a session like this is just that that wasn't the issue that had the attention. Assuming she's back next time, I bet she continues to press it. You don't think the governor is going to go after her in the primary again, Patrick, do you? I don't think so, no. Is he going to go after anybody in the primary? Maybe Stickland. Bonin's telling everybody to stay out of his primaries, including his members. So okay. we'll, we'll see how that goes. So, so maybe that we had one session of, uh, of a kind of Game of Thrones-like interfamily... Right. Right. Intra-family warfare, and then a, that's it. Put away your dragons, right? <laughs> right. Any other questions? My question is, um, the losers and the winners. And this morning I read Patrick's uh, blast about the winners and losers. I don't see anyone talking about the women who are losers who no longer can have access uh, to Planned Parenthood for their contraceptive and health care because of the ban that was on local governments uh, working with Planned Parenthood. Talk to me why we're not hearing them as being losers in this session. You are, by virtue of that question or statement. I think you're going, and I looked at the list as well. That list was fairly broad. When you get down, drill it down, you're gonna find women, and women are super 
super important in the election cycle, more so than ever before in growing in influence. And I think the arguments that are made pro and con about women, women's rights, women's opportunities, are going to be the driving outcome in the national election, and it will filter down to the state election and to the actions of elected officials. That's how I see the future. And in the end, Robbie, what will happen is either women will be activated and animated and agitated enough by the byproducts of that legislation and possibly some other and will mobilize and will be a force in the next election or they won't. I think we'll see it. And if they are a force in the next election on that, then I think the. I want to thought after the You mentioned the school safety roundtables and a piece of legislation that came out of that. Um, but other than school safety, when you look at gun violence prevention in general, what we saw were some small but extreme measures passed, like HB 1177, allowing permitless carry in disaster areas. I'd like to know what you were hearing throughout the session about gun violence prevention, and also what chance, if any, would a, a coordinated effort to, to lobby the governor to veto extreme measures like that have? Didn't we also do guns in church? Yeah. I don't think the state's gotten any less friendly to, the, to gun rights than it has in previous. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's even difficult to have the conversation. I mean, that's the, what, what I find interesting about that issue is uh, the governor made the decision after Santa Fe to convene those roundtables, and he raised the possibility of red flag laws. He didn't say he was for red flag laws. He raised the possibility of having a conversation about red flag laws and he immediately got his hand slapped for, for even being willing to entertain the conversation. It's even difficult to have a conversation about this issue. The, yeah, the most negative thing or positive thing, depending on which side you're on, that happened to the people that wanted more um, access to guns or more you know, ability to carry guns was that they stepped on their own foot and, and um, went and knocked on the speaker's door at home and, you know, the people that wanted to get constitutional carry bills through and overstepped Correct. and uh, basically knocked everything off the table, I think. But for that, they might have even gotten more this session than they did get. You know, the interesting thing there is that the public opinion polling doesn't necessarily align with um, the actions or lack of actions up the street. The public seems to be a little bit more receptive to some change in the law than legislators do, but you know, look, I mean, one of the, we didn't talk about this, but one of the interesting things I thought from the last election that didn't manifest itself in this is that there are a bunch of conservative states around us where the conservative leaders of those states on marijuana and Medicaid expansion were both like, not just no, hell no. And we represent the voters who put us in office in saying not just no, but hell no. And then it got to the voters to put those two issues on the ballot as referendum items. And in both cases, in a number of very conservative states, states that are often as conservative as Texas is temperamentally, both Medicaid expansion and marijuana reforms passed as voter referendums. Uh, I, I, I think there is a, sometimes a gulf between the public and the people who represent them. 
And I think on the public opinion polls on guns, however you feel about this issue, there is a bit of a gulf between elected leadership and the public. Yeah, and I'd never say never. We were never going to have a lottery. We were never going to legalize, you know, pot. We got, you know, close to decriminalizing it. The House overwhelmingly voted for that. You know, a lot of things that we were never going to do kind of come around. So, um, you know, I don't know where that one's going. I agree with Bill that right now it's, we're pretty intransigent. I think at the federal level last election cycle with the election of Colin Allred and, and Lizzie Fletcher, there was some movement on that issue. Those were two candidates who, um, I wouldn't say campaigned on the issue, but certainly didn't shy away from it that you may expect on, on gun to shy stuff. away from it. Well, and the fact is, Will Hurd, a you know, Republican right. member of Congress from San Antonio, voted with the Democrats on gun stuff this last right. few months uh, in a way that potentially exposes him probably not to being attacked from his right. So, so. All right, do we have any other, any other questions? Are we all good? I think we are out of time. Thank you very much uh, for coming out today. I really appreciate it. Good. Please give it up for our panelists, too. Thank you, bud.